My apologies to those who regularly listen to the show. The weekly show format doesn't always work when I come across great material that I want to share with my audience. That's what happened with today's show. It took hours of editing, sorting, and putting back together to produce today's show. I hope you enjoy what you hear. From our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. In 2006, the Yankees announced plans to build a new $800 million stadium. In order to do so, the administration of former billionaire mayor Michael Bloomberg doled out public welfare to the privately owned lucrative sports franchise. The welfare included 444 million in rent and tax breaks, free lands in the form of 28 acres of city owned public parks, ball fields and tennis courts, state subsidized parking garages, and the construction of a new Metro North commuter rail station in front of the new stadium, something local residents had been requesting for years. In exchange, the Yankees signed a community benefits agreement in the form of several promises. The return of land after knocking down the old stadium, jobs for local residents, and other givebacks. Local South Bronx activists like Ernesto Maldonado is a self-proclaimed Yankee fan, yet one of the many who mobilized in opposition to the original deal and the Yankees' broken promises thereafter. This is an audio documentary of the Four South Bronx Coalition. Multi-ethnic organizations made up of residents of the housing spaces sandwiched up against the New York Yankee Stadium and their supporters. I learned about them while researching writing my book, Upsetting the Apple Cart, published in 2015. I conducted interviews with movement participants, but their stories did not make their way into the final pages of the book because it went beyond the historical period covered in the book, which is the 1930s to the early 1990s. In the process of going through my audio archives lately, I started listening to the interviews, which I had not done since recording them more than a decade ago. I listened, I started thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and thought these would make for a good audio documentary. As with the book, I hope the documentary provides a roadmap for activists to do the anti-racist work so needed in this country and elsewhere. Second, I pray that the audio documentary inspires journalists, scholars, activists, and those who write plays and movies to share this modern day David and Goliath story. I welcome collaborators to reach out to me about the oral histories used in this documentary and the many others that didn't make it in. Stories about organizing among cemetery workers as well as families mobilizing against violence in their communities. At the time I collected these oral histories, members of the Four South Bronx Coalition have been engaging and educating the public about the actions of Yankee executives and city officials who colluded with them to build a new stadium on broken promises. I thought it appropriate to share this history now given the current spotlight on systematic racism and racist public policy decisions that have underdeveloped, marginalized, and impoverished targeted groups in our country, particularly black and Latino citizens in spaces like the South Bronx. We start the story with Ernesto Maldonado, who had been involved in community organizing in the South Bronx for a long time. Born and raised in, in uh, Yankee Stadium area, Highbridge, all my life. 
come from uh, projects. And I grew up in a in, in project that was, uh, at the time, it was Puerto Rican, white, and black. And I grew up interacting with blacks, lat whites, and Latinos. I grew up eating in the houses, playing among uh, white, black, and Latinos. That molded my, my, my outlook on the issue of race. My being light-skinned Latino, but having kinky hair and a big nose, and resembling more of, of my African roots than in Taino Indian roots than, than that of uh, a white skin. And it was basically through walking into stores and hearing Latino store owners make reference to watching him. He's going to steal and my having to say, I'm not going to steal anything. What are you talking about? And then I noticed that there was a preference, you know, and, you know, with the, uh, the girls for the good hair, what they call the straight hair and white skin Latinos. So early on, I, I kind of gravitate in terms of my, my preference for women was that of, of black women mm -hmm. because there was more of an acceptance okay. uh, to me. And, and you know, uh, I grew up while interacting with, with Latinos. I grew up primarily among blacks because of, uh, of it. I have, a, I have a prison background. Early on, I, you know, I had problems in school. You know, I come from a household, you know, my father was somewhat abusive physically, you know, uh, used to beat me. I experienced a lot early in my life, you know, uh, 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 sexual abuse, molestation, and, and it kind of shaped my anger, and, and, and bullies was also a part of my life early on, and I was forced to fight. I took on a, a, a real bad personality and an attitude, which resulted with uh, me doing three different state bids. Doing 17 years inside, I've been out now for for 15 years. I've been an activist for going on 10 years. In October 29, 1975, I was arrested for attempt murder and a robbery. Attempt murder of a police officer, of two police officers and a robbery which, for which they was arresting me. I had a $50,000 bail, I couldn't post bail. I was sent to Rackers Island, and Rackers Island I endured a period where I really found what racism was really all about. As a 17-year-old, um, there was, uh, I was sent to an adolescent facility on Rackers Island, which had a lot of race problems. I'm talking about that. They had a race war where, um, for the most part, Latinos who were Puerto Rican, some New York Rican, some from Puerto Rico were actually really um, assaulting physically assaulting with knives a lot of blacks based on race. Because of my upbringing, that was not tolerated wherever I was. Mm -hmm. If I was in the housing area, right, I knew better and I would allow it. I was always very strong in terms of uh, uh, my ability to speak, even at 17, and my ability to organize and lead people. These riots were so heavy, so many people were getting hurt, and it was front page news back then. Board of Correction, Commissioner Ward, Benjamin Ward, noticed that there was a pattern 
that in several of the housing areas, it wasn't going on. And they were curious to find out why. They came in and they found out, you know, that in certain ho uh, housing areas, it wasn't tolerated. We was able to live together, black and Latinos, because we stayed true to what our experience was from where we came from. And in an effort to calm the situation, they requested that a representative from each housing area come to a meeting to discuss what was going on. The meeting was with the entire Board of Correction, Benjamin Ward, representatives from the mayor's office. I stood relatively quiet for, the, for most of the meeting and I heard, you know, different excuses. It was about the food, it was about the conditions of the jail. It was a lot of scapegoating going on. And I allowed it for a while and then I I recall saying in New York City, when we was in the streets, all of us, we ate together, we slept in each other's homes, talk about black and Latinos, and then we come into a jail environment and we become hostile. I said that if you notice that in the room here, you have a lot of representatives, you got two representatives from each housing area, and one is black and one is Latino. But if you look at the Latinos, they were all New York Latinos. And I said that what you did as Latinos from New York City, you've allowed the ones that came from Puerto Rico, can't speak English, frustrated, racist because of experiences in Puerto Rico between the white skin and the dark skin Latino with the kinky hair. Right. You've allowed them to influence your behavior and turn against people who are your friends. I said they can't even come to the table and express themselves. That's why they're not here. Due now, 17 to 19 years okay. old. Within a week, the riots rolled. That was my first organizing experience. The guys sitting at the table realized that they, that they were being manipulated. I was able to convey that I realized what their frustrations were, but their frustrations should be aimed on. Uh, they, they were doing the same thing that was being done to them in Puerto Rico. I also was the lead petitioner against the conditions on Rackers Island. As a result of my actions, I had got cool with two members of the Board of Correction, Nasty Kinsler and Michael Cleary. And she said, listen, we got to get you out of here. They went to court for me and got my bail reduced, and I was released. But at that time, I was, listen, I was even more angrier through that experience, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I kept going. You know, I just kept going in and out for a long time. And then I just, you know, it was like I had a, a somewhat of a spiritual awakening, man, and, 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 and I, I, you know, I came to a point of realizing, you know, and I have to say that at 17 years old, um, I, 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 I wanted to be an activist at that point. When I experienced everything I experienced at that point, I said, man, something has to be done about this. But I couldn't, the grip of, of, of the lifestyle already was there. You know, I was already into the money, the, the clothes, the jewelry, you know, and, and all the other stuff. And, I, and, and then, you know, like not being able to have support services after I just left the jail. I came home in 92 and I haven't been back in, since then. Uh, the only time I've been arrested since then was uh, I got arrested during the Yankee Stadium. I let I let I let all four of the Yankee Stadium um, demonstrations. 
This is before the South Bronx got together? Yeah, this, yeah they're after. They're, okay. I call them the, the new regime. The beginning was, you know, like uh, an acknowledgement, right, that the Yankees really did not do much for the Highbridge area and the surrounding areas of of the park. And, and the, you know, the, the fact that they was going to upon the community and just take a park that was there, an institution that was there for a long time, and people was totally against it. Prior to this actual movement of people coming together, public officials, corporations, Yankees, everybody did what they wanted to do in, in that area. There was never no, 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 no uh, public outcry about anything that was done in that area. And as a result of that, you know, we have, right, the, uh, uh, we're the poorest area in, in the United States. You know, with the average income between nine and seventeen thousand dollars a year, out of forty-two different communities in, in New York City, we rate the highest in health issues, uh, ranging from diabetes to AIDS, cancer, asthma. We have the biggest shelter population, homeless shelter population. Our schools uh, rate the poorest, uh, although they are improving. But this first movement you're talking about, did you organize it or who was with you? In the beginning, it was uh, a number of, of, of residents in the community. What happened was I got involved through the United pa Parents of Highbridge who took up the campaign as a uh, parent-led educational reform group in Highbridge. I got involved through there, but what happened was I was engaged in so many other campaigns that they uh, uh, did a lot of the groundwork while they was doing the groundwork, I was going into different neighborhoods, getting people involved, talk to different groups, hand out flyers. I came on about five months before the actual court case came down. I came on during the time when the uh, community benefits agreements was a, was a secret. Who took them to court? Our group. Okay. Save our parks. Save our parks. We lost the case. The experience was something else because we, we acknowledged early on we were successful in getting the community board to vote against the Yankee Stadium. It was something like 16 to, to, to 8 or something against it. We won. Uh, as a result of that, the community board was dismantled by the borough president, the guy that they sent to Washington. Adolfo Carrion. To save the park, black, Hispanic? Black, Hispanic, and white. What year are you talking about? Can't even remember the case, the year. First of all, this whole Yankee deal came about during the um, Giuliani administration. And the reason for that is, if you notice that Patrick Levine, who's the president, New York Yankees, was a member of Giuliani's administration. So for him to go from his from the administration to the Yankees is kind of suspicious. We also found that Adolfo Carrion ran for Boxborough president. He accepted 400000 from the Yankees as a donation for his election, but was doing negotiations for the new Yankee Stadium. During one of the hearings to determine whether or not the Yankees would take the... Um, ballpark, it was a community forum in which they was going to hear if the community was in favor or against it. 
they told the community that the meeting was at six o'clock and they packed it in at five o'clock. And when they packed it in, they packed it in with construction workers. They were, of course, was in favor of the building because it, it, it would lend to their uh, employment. And they locked, they completely locked the community out. Bronxboro President's uh, 161st Street office. We had to take buses to City Hall for the hearings. And while we was outside waiting to get inside, we noticed that there was a group of people that just opened the door and let them in. They didn't even go through the metal detectors. This was right at the time when we was on the terror alert. Yet they allowed them to walk right inside City Hall because they were supporters, again, of the project. I had a lot of um, seniors on the uh, bus. They were outraged how these people was just uh, being allowed to go right in and we had to go through metal detectors and, and stuff. And I later found out that the groups that was in favor were organized by a housing group that later was charged with improprieties nationally and in the Bronx. I had been involved in, 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 in a collaborative. Uh -huh. It included them. What I found for the most part is that you always have to suspect people who receive state, federal, state, city, and federal funds. So where your loyalties are going to be? The harassment the community endured over, the, over this fight. And your experience as an organizer, too, is this been one of the toughest things you've ever had to battle? Yes, because a lot of organizations got involved because of what they could get out of it. They, they, they had no concern about that community at large. Okay. They, for the most part, they were concerned with how can they fund, get funds to fund their programs. Okay. And a lot of places like Northwest Bronx uh, Clergy Coalition, they took money. And they was involved early in the fight. They got their money and took off. The baseball clubs, they took the money and took off. They used the group as a means towards an end. Uh, Four South Bronx Coalition has not fallen to that, that temptation. No. The first movement that you were involved with, that some of those people peeled away, that's two years back then. Yeah. Most successful events from the early movement to even this new movement that has emerged. The most successful event is, of course, that, you know, actually coming the first time that they, that the powers to be was challenged in that area and going to that community board and, and winning at the community board level. That was a, an awakening for the, for the powers to be. That was the first time that they ever received such opposition to anything. There's a young generation, but out of everybody, I think the most progressive and radical is Robert. Robert Carrillo. Robert Carrillo is a graduate of Wesleyan College and a millennial. He is the chair of the For the South Bronx Coalition, the second wave of organizing against the Yankees. Where are you from originally? Washington Heights. How did you end up getting involved in the coalition? I was recruited by Julio Pavon. Went to go play softball one time. I mean, that's where we practiced for okay. the past two, three years. Parks people that were there said you can't play. These fields are closed. It was all related to, to the Yankee Stadium development. So that was, I, I guess I had first-hand experience. We were going to go play practice and, and weren't allowed to. Uh, yeah, you can't play. You can't practice. Because the Yankees, we, we can't. We found all the connections later on. 
the Yankees took over parkland. The people that were using that parkland would now have to go use the other parkland. There wasn't enough parkland uh, for us to, to use. It was about green space and the loss of green space. Yeah. Um, and then Julio Pavon said that there's actually a movement um, to, to fight the injustices that the Yankees development created. So that's how I got involved. And, and you? I grew up in Compton, California. Daniela Perez. For the South Bronx Coalition's Danielle Perez is also a Wesleyan College graduate and a millennial. I heard him talking to him about this Yankee Stadium and we have to do something about it and, you know, they're going to take over the community and I pretty much got involved because of him. It was just him going to the meetings and then uh, I tagged along one time and I've been tagging along ever, ever since. The more that I get into it, the more it's kind of like, God, we have to do so much more, we have so much research to do. So it was because of them that I found out about it and I've been active. What, what is your title in the coalition? I'm the chairperson. I guess the most important thing that I've learned is uh, outreach. Um, just meeting with people in the coalition, meeting with people not in the coalition, uh, just trying to create awareness of the issues, trying to create uh, or build membership. And then also just sitting down really with Ramon. And Ramon Jimenez, affectionately called the people's lawyer, Harvard-trained lawyer Ramon Jimenez did pro bono work, especially for the poor and disenfranchised, fighting for tenants' rights against social injustices and representing political prisoners. Throughout his life, he remained a champion of the oppressed and an ardent critic of political corruption and what he called bankrupt political policy in New York City. Uh, and with everyone, really, but just coming up with the ideas um, and try to and how to better organize not just the movement, but ourselves. I grew up in Compton, California. Daniela Perez. All the Latinos that live in California, or Mexicans, even South Americans, they really don't have much of an African background. We don't have those historical lines, and we, you know, we're all treated as Mexican, and you don't speak English, and, and that's the difference. I remember the first time hearing about how, how different it is over there. And one of my friends, uh, who's African-American, who's from California, from L.A., he couldn't understand how at Wesleyan, everybody got along. Not just that it was black, Latino, white, Asian, everybody was, and he couldn't, he couldn't figure it out. But then ultimately, I think it is what she, she was talking about. It's just, it's not just black and Latino, but it's really everyone. Everyone is here. You can be hate, hateful. But it's not, you know, you're not going to rally a group of people to hate on, on another group because everybody's so mixed here. It's not a utopia here, but it's the most diverse place in the whole world in, in terms of all the populations that are, that are here. So hmm. It feels like utopia to me. You say, <laughs> oh, the immigrants. I'm like, wait a minute. They're not, just talking about they're not just talking about me. They're talking about a couple of us. The definition to be immigrant in L.A. is it's Mexican. Mexicans. That's it. Mexicans. That's, that's immigrant. My friend who, from, from Cali. Who, um, so he came from my neighborhood, yeah. too. You know, so when he would talk about immigrants, he wasn't talking in, in a nice way. But the people he was talking to were also African-American, but from like the West Indies. They were black-skinned, but from the West Indies or, or Panama. He was really cool with. They were like, whoa, my man, you got to, <laughs> we're immigrants, too. <laughs> oh, I should just say. We're black-skinned, but we're immigrants. Yeah. You know? So you can't just sit toss all immigrants and just say all immigrants are taken away from this or that or the other. Ramon Jimenez. One thing I trained my daughter in that I'm always proud of, I taught her 
about her African roots, about her Indian roots, about discrimination in the sense that, you know, never open the door to discrimination. It's like opening a Pandora's box. In other words, sometimes Latinos like Puerto Ricans talk about Dominicans. Mm -hmm. Dominicans will talk about people from Guatemala. Afro-Americans will talk about Caribbean blacks. Caribbean blacks will talk about Afro-Americans. Never, ever open that box to discrimination because, you know, and, and I think that's makes you a good organizer. When you get a, when you get along with everybody, you understand your roots, understand everything. I'm a good organizer because I like people. Mm-hmm. I love people. And I, and I respect all people's heritage and culture. My mother was, like, light-skinned. And my father was brown-skinned. My mother, my mother who went, only went to second grade, married my dad. Her whole family ostracized her. No. So I knew about racism, you know, when I was seven or eight years old, but I never used to see too much of my, my mother's family. Because they ostracized my mother because she married a brown-skinned Puerto Rican. You know, like, and I guess that's, that was the early lessons about racism. When I was growing up, I was 14, 15 years old when I was exposed to Malcolm X. I, I used to live on the street. I lived over here. Malcolm lived over here. There was a candy store two blocks up from, I mean, two, two houses two uh, houses up from, Mal- from Malcolm's house. Mm-hmm. So my mother walked to the candy store all the time. When Malcolm was with the Nation of Islam, his daughters, when my mother used to pass by, used to call my mother a white-eyed devil because, they, you know, they saw her. She was, you know, yeah. white-skinned and all that, so that's what they used to call her. So for about a two- or three-, four-week period, every time my mother went to the grocery store, they, they were out. They would, they would taunt her and stuff like that. So she told Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown was like the guy who organized the whole block. He worked for the post office. And so Mr. Brown called over Malcolm. And I was about 15 years old when this happened. 14, 15. When Mr. Brown told Malcolm, my mother was there, I was there. Uh, Malcolm looked at his door and said, don't you ever call this woman a wide-eyed devil. You know, this is a Puerto Rican woman, a hard-working woman. My mother, by the way, loved Malcolm X. She loved him because he wore a suit and tie and was the courteous, most courteous person in the world. You know, when you you stop by Malcolm, Malcolm would say, how are you doing? You know, he was just like super polite. And she, you know, those are things that my mother liked. There was an incident I saw where Malcolm actually chastised his two daughters for doing that in terms of my mom's. The show will be right back. For related content, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The success I've experienced on and off the field, in relationships and professionally, are a result of what I call my Super 7. Seven principles that I developed over time that if you apply them, they will make a positive difference in your life. Purchase a copy of the book today. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Danielle, is this your first time getting involved in a movement? Seventh grade, and they uh, dismissed one of my teachers, and you know it. With no cause, they just, the kid was obnoxious and we were testing, he removed him from the classroom, you know, it was, it just it turned out to be a big uh, fiasco. Um, anyways, we were all, we all loved our teacher and I remember organizing and getting parents and students together. You, we went, you were at the leader. Yeah, I was a leader. I was <laughs> remembering this morning, I was like, wait a minute, I've always done stuff like this. And I organized by myself and I got parents 
hmm. and and students to come with me to the uh, district office. And I was 13 years old. Hmm. So I'm like just remembering things like that, and I've always had it. Like if I see something wrong, you know, maybe I've been ignoring it or I just haven't been as active because I've been focusing on other things, but now it's kind of like in my face, I have to do something about it. How did you get involved in the South Bronx Coalition? Yeah, I've been an activist for, uh, that was about 16 or 17 years old. I, I began a group called People for the People. Ramon Jimenez. Uh, which was mostly an Afro-American group. I, I think I was the only Puerto Rican in the group, but at that time I didn't even see myself as Puerto Rican. I saw, I saw so you know, I, that was when I was 16 or 17, People for the People in Queens. We had a chapter uh, in Boston. That was the one I was involved in. While, while you're in law school? Yeah. Okay. And prior to that, you know, I was I was involved in the anti-war movement when I was about 16 years old. I, I refused to, uh, I was 18, I refused to fight in Vietnam. Muhammad Ali was my inspiration, among others. There was a big uh, kind of debate about Latinos and Afro-Americans in the 80s when Jesse Jackson ran. A writer for the New York Daily News named Miguel Perez, a Cuban writer, wrote an article attacking me, Felipe Luciano, and Julio Pavon for supporting Jesse Jackson. The Daily News let me write a response, and I wrote a response about why I thought, you know, black and Latino unity was what was supposed to happen, man. And it was a big debate at that time about that. I was like, in, that's in 84. So when the coalition started, how did people find out? How did people start coming to the meetings is my question. We recruited them. You recruited these people? Yes. And how did you go about targeting who you were going to get involved? There were certain people we wanted because they were activists in the past. There were also uh, uh, people that though I was involved with in other issues that I, you know, that I worked told you know told them about this issue and they got involved. And other people recruited other people. You know that's how we you know we, we began building it. What what do you see as the um, successful activities or strategies that you guys have used so far? We've educated people a lot and created like a voice that, that tells people what's, you know, Yankee promises, broken promises, keeps on the Yankees. He's like monitoring the Yankees, uh-huh. what they do, what they don't do. Think that the Yankees have made some moves because of our, because of some of the things we've done. I also think one of the most important things that we're doing is we're building a South Bronx Congress, which came out of this experience, out of the need to really unite all the, all the various grassroots forces from the bottom up in the South Bronx. And so that's, we've actually been instrumental in creating a force much more powerful than us that meets every three sides is having a congress. One of the things you guys have done strategy-wise is educate the people. What does that mean? Telling people about the promises the Yankees made in the Community Benefits Agreement, showing how they failed to meet those promises. We've been on radio. We've been in the news. Uh, we've, been, uh, we've had pickets in front of Randy Levine's house. And when you asked, you know, what was the, the most important and so far, more successful. To me, I think I would choose that one. Robert Carrillo. We had 30 or 40 people. I would say at least half of them were women. People holding placards and, and the candles and just walking. And then our flyers that talked about Randy Levine um, and his role and the Yankees' role in, in holding community. A lot of his neighbors were upset. And even a couple joined in in the, in the walk. We've had pickets in front of Yankee Stadium. Ramon Jimenez. We've had educational forums. We've had all those things. We encounter a racist press. You know, we got a deal. And I, we've developed ties over the years, so we have some press that's always with us. But, you know, the majority of the press, you know, unless you kill somebody, somebody dies in the South Bronx, you know, they, they don't come to the South Bronx. So, you know, when we do have press conferences, creative ways of bringing people 
because again, you know, the, most of the majority of media only wants to hear about killings in our community, you know? What have been strategies of work to get the media to come? How we write the press release, contacts, we made a made the front page of a diario when we had a picket around Yankee Stadium too, talking about jobs. We, we've been on like Errol Lewis show. We've been on uh, on WBAI. We've been on WWRL. We've been on Channel 12, Channel 1 to educate people about a feeling of people that they can do something about it. They just don't have to accept this mega corporation that builds this, this mega palace in, in the South Bronx, you know, that we can do something about it, man. And, most of the people we have, you know, which are, are Latino or, or Afro-American come from the bottom up and come from ex different experiences in terms of organizing and stuff like that, you know? I remember the thing that, that Malcolm X said, which is, you know, and I always try to use that. In other words, it's sort of like when Malcolm started the organization of Afro-American unity, he said, you can be a black doctor or a black unemployed, they still call you a nigger. And what we try to do is, you know, say, Yankee Stadium, you can be black, Latino, or whatever, but when, when there's games, you ain't got no parking space. You know, there's no jobs for blacks and there's no jobs for Latinos. In other words, showing the commonness of interest, okay. man, you know? So, I mean, you've been involved in a lot of movements. Are you guys, are you are you recreating some of the same things you've you, done? No, you, we can't take plays out of old playbooks because it's one of the most powerful forces, you know, there is. They have incredible public relations machine. They ignore you. In other words, we get other people to respond and educating people as to what this corporation has done, what it got, the benefits, the tax subsidies. I've been involved in union campaigns. I've been involved in campaigns to save libraries, schools, or whatever. You know what? This is the most difficult. It's the most difficult because you're dealing with a private corporation that doesn't really care. It has the public relations people, has money. The way they distribute money, they distribute little pieces of money like $500, $1,000. No way. What that does is, you know, organizations may not want to jump on board, but it's so little hush money, man. Hector W. Soto. Grew up Manhattan and Astoria, Queens, the projects. And when did you end up going to college at? Queens College City University. Attorney, educator, and activist Hector W. Soto has more than 45 years of experience in the field of civil rights police accountability, and community organizing. He is one of the first directors of New York City's Civilian Complaint Review Board after its reinvention as an all-civilian agency. Soto started his legal career as an attorney with the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and then the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Education Fund. He is a founding member of the Center for Neighborhood Leadership at Community Organizing Training School. What was the first movement you ever got involved in? Uh, and I was in a Catholic school called Lady of Mount Carmel, and for some re I transferred there from, a, from public school in the fifth grade. I was watching something on the night before, and the nun we were doing catechism, and I was very good at it. And I, so I asked the nun, well, isn't it true that we're all in God's image, and, uh, and Jesus loves all of us? And so then I asked the follow-up question, well, how can the Catholic Church have segregated schools? in New Orleans, because I guess that's what I was watching the night before. Okay, okay. And I got punished for asking the question wow. and told I shouldn't be raising those kind of questions during class. That was the awakening. I was actually a member of a, a group called MIMP. Movimiento Izquierdista Renal Puerto Rico. Puerto Rican Socialist Party, their line uh, has always been, and to the extent that leaders were dedicated to this and led people in this direction, I think it does make a difference and impacted on black, Latino, 
uh, relations. Uh, Puerto Rican Socialist Party, uh, basically there was one nation divided, that everybody, that all Puerto Ricans in the United States and in uh, Puerto Rico were part of one nation, and that uh, our interest and our future lied with was aligned with what was going on in Puerto Rico, i.e., the the struggle for independence and liberation of Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. as as the primary concern. Okay. And so, then, in fact, we were like an exile community here on some kind of permanent basis. MIMP, our position was diametrically opposed. Like we were for the independence and liberation of Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. but we believed after we did studying and all this other stuff that. The future of the Puerto Rican community in the United States lied with, is more aligned, or in terms of interest, was more aligned with those, uh, with the struggles of other okay. people of color and that were struggling for their, for equality and freedom here. We were, although we supported and we actually collaborated with PSP and the Lords and stuff, we were very much involved here. Uh, and that was the position that we took. The Puerto Rican Socialist Party was apolitical. They didn't vote and didn't support. Right, right. Said, what about you guys? Yeah, we know we weren't. We were very much, you know, into being involved and then including voting here. The interview guys for the South Bronx Coalition. How did that start? Had it always been a black Latino coalition? I think conceptually it always was. I mean, my one of the reasons I was in MIMP because I, I had reached that decision on my own that this was the better political philosophy orientation to have about our struggles here. So conceptually, I think we thought about this as, a, always thought about it, the black, Latino, poor white people that are on the, uh, on the outs, generally. That kind of a movement. We actually started with the For the South Bronx Coalition around the Yankee Stadium issues, and even there... We defined it as, you know, this wasn't a Latino issue, this wasn't a black issue, but it was a, this was a South Bronx mm-hmm. community issue, and of all the people that lived there, and, and also the West Bronx. Out of the coalition, the Congress was formed. And the coalition still exists. We're still dealing with the Yankee Stadium issues. We're part of the South Bronx Congress. I think the biggest achievement was actually conceptualizing that, come up with a collective agenda of what has to be done uh, and what the objectives are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we went into the South Bronx Congress. Once it got started, they would probably just keep on expanding on its, of its own, going into whatever directions it was necessary. What has been the most unique aspect of waging a battle against the Yankees? That we were able to get people to articulate their resentments, issues, problems with the Yankees, even as they love the Yankees. And we could then... There's a separation between the Yankees, the team, and Yankee management, and that people uh, understood that we can, you can love the Yankees and still have problems with their management, which is why we use Randy Levine as the target. We make it clear that, that Randy Levine, who's he? Oh, he's the president of the Yankees, uh, the Yankee company. The other thing, people believe that they can do something about it, even though it is the Yankees. How did you pull that off? First time we went out, we just thought, went around asking people, how do you feel about Yankee Stadium, you know, whenever there's a game there? As opposed to, what do you think about the Yankees as a team? And people started, well, the traffic's this, we, our buses are delayed, police don't, don't pay attention to what things, only the Yankees things. Had a whole list of grievances from people. And so we knew that there was something there. We had known that before, and then, you know, coupled with, they took the, the parks away and all that other stuff. 
Then we had a campaign. We wrote some of these things up and started sending out a flyer and telling people, if you're concerned about these things, call Randy Levine and tell him that you're concerned and ask, and ask the Yankees to meet with the community. Plus, there was the community benefits agreement, which, which the Yankees had this document that they drew up where they made you know, promises about money and, and materials and stuff they were going to provide to the community. So we started telling people about that and so where's the money? So we had this campaign, I think, was campaign to call Randy Levine. We were giving out his office number. We all called a number of times. And then we did the, uh, we had the petition that we started circulating. And for some people, even signing a petition was a scary thing, you knowing that this was petition about the Yankees. Uh, and I think, you know, those kind of things allowed people to believe that we can do something here, that the Yankees are not invincible. You know, what's happened is that the Yankees, once they got wind of this, we can track down to almost to the day. I mean, all of a sudden, the Yankees started, you know, press releases and a marketing blitz about all the great things. Because they didn't, they responded with the players. The players are doing this. The players are doing that. But never once addressing, like, what about the community benefits agreement and the, and the issues, the money and stuff that's supposed to happen there? What about the traffic? What about the park? They don't address that, but they have been sending the Yankees to go visit Bronx Lebanon Hospital, sending the Yankees to conduct mini camps. They do some of that every year. This year, they've been doing it on a regular basis. The stadium became the final straw. When this agreement was signed, it just it just notched up the intolerance people felt for it. Taking 26 acres of parkland so they can build a new stadium, taking that away from the community. The Yankees took the parks in August 2006. So be four years now that we don't have those parks. Robert Carrillo. People are definitely aware. People are definitely upset about it. They promised jobs. We don't know whether they actually comply with that because they won't release the information. The community benefits agreement. I think all of those issues, in combination, they made it clear that the Yankee Stadium and the Yankee management are probably the most appropriate symbol of everything that's wrong with the South Bronx. We're just there to be used. We're not there to be, you know, to be helped and, and or make us a partner in making the community better. Mm-hmm. They can come in, do what they want. They, you know, they don't have to pay any, any, they don't have to care whether our buses are delayed. This is one of my pet peeves. The Yankees, when they decided to uh, build a new stadium, also decided that it was about time that Metro North had a station at Yankee Stadium so that people coming from Westchester County and Points North or coming from you know, Manhattan could come up and take the, uh, the railroad right to the Yankee Stadium. Now, you have to understand the community has been asking for the station to be built for uh, in order to alleviate practice traffic concerns going through the Bronx and into Manhattan and to provide another service for the community. Community asking for it, I mean, the community boards, community board four had been on that for a while. The MTA never responded. The Yankees asked, and all of a sudden, by the time the new stadium opens, there is a brand new state-of-the-art MTA station at Yankee Stadium that is open 24-7. It's totally enclosed. There's even a, a covered walkway from the station, which is about maybe two city blocks, right into the stadium. So you never have to leave. You can go straight from the state train station into Yankee Stadium and back. Meanwhile, there are two major Bronx bus lines that run right outside Yankee Stadium, the BX-6 uh, and the BX-13. 
13 goes up to the West Bronx. The 6 is a cross Bronx route, starts in Manhattan, crosses the Bronx, and ends in Hunts Point. Those stops don't even have bus shelters. And our position is that the 800-pound gorilla, or 500-pound, if you believe the commercial, in the room is, is, or is, is Yankee management. And if they want to get something done, they can get something done. They can get the streets closed every time there's a Yankee event, a stadium event. It's not even a Yankee event. If it's declared to be a stadium event, it triggers the closing of certain streets. Mm-hmm. No parking. People can't get to their houses. People can't go shopping. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a major mess. They don't care whether you live there or not. I'm sure that if the Yankees said, we need bus shelters for the people, they just can't be the regular bus shelters. These should be state-of-the-art, mm-hmm. really, you know, with baseball theme and whatnot. They would get it tomorrow. Meanwhile, we asked for it, and we have officially asked for it, and didn't even get a response. One of the challenges that we have is... Robert Carrillo. ...is converting that anger or disappointment into action. A lot of those people in the Bronx and the South Bronx have been fighting fights for so long and not a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. So it's, this is just another fight. And ultimately, and I think we realize it too, it, it is a fight that ultimately we could end up losing. Okay. So it'll be another loss you know, for the community in a sense. So I think some people don't want to get involved because of that. Because when you all um, started the movement to deal with this stuff, did you uh, systematically say all this stuff's got to be bilingual? The reality is we understand that, that that's a requirement. Sometimes it gets accommodated, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes even when we're conscious of it, it doesn't get accommodated. It's not practical, it takes too much time to do everything in two languages. It's an issue in my church that we just discussed last Sunday, how to deal with that. What role has technology played in the uh, For the South Bronx Coalition? We have a Facebook page, we have a website. I think we have to learn how to use it, but I don't think there's any choice. I think we have to use it. That's the way the uh, quote a younger generation is communicating and mm-hmm. if we want to communicate effectively with them we're going to have to use it and not give up the old ways i think there is there's still value to coming up printing a flyer and posting flyers in um, south bronx and other poor communities there's a real digital divide not everybody has access to the uh to the world wide web or you know and, and can get onto facebook or mm-hmm. so some of that stuff is not valuable sometimes we still have to rely on telephone calls and posters uh flyers and i think that's still part of the game what are yeah. the challenges you guys face more problematic is getting old school to make way for the new school mm-hmm. including adopting some of their you know some of their techniques some of their strategies we won't even think that way those things won't automatically come to us and just as some of their stuff you know, some of our stuff doesn't come to them so we have to remind them about mm-hmm. certain things Leila ramon jimenez so as a little girl i grew up with the children of, of activists and also with different activists in New York City themselves. I have learned all different tactics. I have heard all different tactics. A millennial, Leila Ramon Jimenez is the daughter of veteran activist Ramon Jimenez. She holds a leadership position in the For the South Bronx Coalition. Of organizing and I have seen them and I've been a part of them even when I was a little girl. And just to stay a witness and to, to see what methods everyone uses has taught me so many things. And especially with, with organizing it and seeing humanity. A lot of young people that I've worked with that have done amazing things and we look 
had all our older fellow people who were our freedom fighters before us, and we tried to learn from them. We we listened to them. We talked to them. We. What are some things that are intuitive for your generation when you think about activism that you're trying to share to the younger generation? Cultural appropriateness. Hector W. Soto. For instance, you know, if you're going to be working with my generation of people, you need to know what the cultural amenities are okay. and, and, re and respect them. Even if the people themselves may not be, you know, they don't call you Don Hector or they don't say, you still have to do it. I think that's it's a, it's a question of respect, how you dress. I wouldn't walk around with sandals and, and short pants and a t-shirt to go uh, door knocking. They would, and it would maybe be effective with their, their generation, but there's a whole lot of people that just get turned off by the looks, some of those things. And I think theirs is a lot of, of and then we have to remind them that, you know, people my age don't tweet. You can send out all the tweets you want. Some old school people call themselves, well, I'm a dinosaur and I'm proud. Young people react, well, how can you say that? How can you take that position? And, you know, we're thinking that, you know, just doing stuff and assuming. And like you said, what, you sent me an email? I only read my emails, you know, once every two days or every three days. Leila Ramon Jimenez. When they organized when they were younger, when there was no tech, you know, when there was no computer, they had to do it personally. And they had to write, you know, you see flyers handwritten. And to me, that is more effective. To me, that's more personal. But we have been able to use the internet. But it's interesting how we've set up the listservs, the really interesting. We're dealing with a community at a time where schools right now, where people, not everyone has access to a, a computer, where people don't, you know, but it is an integral part. Ramon Jimenez. I'm a dinosaur. I tell people there's no substitute for direct contact. Yeah. That sometimes, you know, and I believe that we have to do use all methods. Sometimes technology has made us forget the phone yeah. call and the personal contact. Mm -hmm. And as an organizer, to me, the, that personal contact is the key to organizing. For people like me who have computers, I've you know, I, I, you know, I have, I've had a, a website, Gallo Alboroto, so I've had, but I. To me, like, you know, you give me a, a new yellow pad me too. to write. And a I, typewriter. I, you know, I love a new yellow. I, I still write on a yellow pad. Tell me about the role of women in, the, in this movement. Daniela Perez. That's interesting. When the guys started, the, when the guys, that tells you so much. <laughs> <laughs> started, it was just them. And then I tagged along for the, that first meeting. And then uh, we did a little bit of recruiting. Then um, Lydia came on board, and she was on it. And then Layla came on board. Nita His mother was a activist here in the South Bronx, okay. um, and she, yeah, she's been very active. She's been with uh, Save the Parks mm -hmm. when she was trying to fight the Yankees before we even started. They did a couple of rallies as well, trying to, you know, save the parks. Robert Carrillo. The Florida South Bronx Coalition women have been very instrumental in this fight against the Yankees. Um, you know, you had Joyce Hoagie, you had yes. Anita Antonetti. The women are the ones who have been here since it was an idea and still involved in making sure that at least the parks get built. How do you keep from getting burned out? I keep, I keep from getting burned out. Ramon Jimenez. Because I see uh, young people inspire and they inspire me and I, and I, and I want to, I always tell my daughter, uh, and I'm sure you'll tell your daughter uh, and your son this later on, I wish I had a pill that I could give my daughter where she could learn 
all the good things I did and the mistakes I made so she could move from there. Other young people's inspirational to me. And also, you know, brother, you know, hey, the joy of, what, what's, what's that saying? The, the joy of life is in resistance, brother. In the struggle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. What keeps you from getting burnt out? <laughs> I think... Robert Carrillo. The idea or the vision, ultimately, the people in the South Bronx will get what they deserve or, or need. My new role is to try and go out and meet more people. It takes a real effort because I'm used to emailing, kind of impersonal. And after our meeting, we were walking down to the train station and there, there was a bunch of second graders. And I learned to find out that they were second graders because they, they had a survey. And the survey was, how has the, the building of the Yankee Stadium affected you? If you could do it over, would you, would you allow the Yankees to build their stadium? They're from a charter school, the Bronx Community Charter School. The teacher gave them assignment to, to create their own neighborhood and community in the classroom. So they created a community, and then the teacher said, all right, well now suppose the mayor wants to put a, a new stadium in there, in, in your community. You know, what do you want to do? And so the kid, they put a survey together, and then they actually came out to the streets. Wow. Things like that inspired I wish somebody would have done this, you know, before, back in 2006, 2005, when the thought of the Yankee Stadium, you know, there, there were no surveys, you mm -hmm. know, nobody handed anything out. I wasn't involved in the movement to not bring Yankee Stadium in. I wasn't involved one way or another, but I guess I wasn't involved, so I sort of let it happen, too. My thinking was, you know, it's the Yankees, they're rich, you know, I'm sure they'll do the right thing by the community. They've been here for so long, um, you know, I'm sure that the stadium is going to bring new jobs. I'm sure that when they knock down, you know, they're gonna knock down the stadium fast and, and rebuild bigger, better park, and they haven't done any of that. There's no way I cannot keep on with this fight today, you know. So things like that. How do you keep from getting burnt out? You know, I, uh, along those the same lines. Daniela Perez. I've been sleeping this whole time, and now that I have a little bit of knowledge and I know, like I just can't ignore it. You can't just pretend like you don't know and turn the other way. You get discouraged, but something has kept you going. What keeps you going? If I don't try to do anything about it, if we don't try to do anything about it, nobody will. We just can't sit here and complain and we're not going to do anything about it. Pretty much it. About it. I'm not going to complain unless I'm <laughs> doing anything to make it better. Leila Ramon Jimenez. I think that it's just so inspiring as a young person to hear battles that have been won before. And that, you know, it inspires us to keep on going and to keep on... That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Show. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 